We are going to continue on this morning in uh, the this, this series on discipleship and change. So hopefully you have a handout. Did you all grab one of those on your way in? If you didn't, then they should be back on the back table there. But I'd love for us to pray together, and then we'll jump in. Lord, give us grace this morning as we come and seek to just uh, be encouraged in our walk with you. Help us to really grasp and understand the truths of your word to be able then to be changed uh, by your work. Lord, to apply ourselves diligently, even as Pastor Rick has preached the last few weeks uh, from Second Peter about uh, adding uh, these things to our faith. Help us to pursue those things for your glory. Lord, give us uh, your blessing and fruit in those things, the opportunities and abilities, even just to help sharpen one another and to impact one another. Lord, we want to be a, a church that is full of lights that shine brightly, um, that aren't dim and hid under a basket or anything like that. So help us in our words and our lives to shine for you. Uh, bless this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there is a spectrum of understanding regarding the process and means of sanctification. It ranges anywhere from the, the good old, you know, let go and let God side of things um, on one end to the other end of being, it's up to me to now validate my salvation by my works. There's a whole spectrum in between those. And the question is, which one is right or is it neither? I want us to look real quick in Philippians 2, <clears throat> verses 12 and 13. They help us answer that question right there. In Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, express it, manifest it, even bring it to fruition. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So regarding that spectrum, let go and let God, it's up to me. Philippians 2 what Paul tells us there helps us understand that there are complementary roles in the process of sanctification. There's one for God and there's one for us. So this spectrum, neither end is correct. But rather there's, there are, there's a role for the Lord and there's a role for us. God's role is, as verse 13 says, he gives the willing and the working. And verse 12 helps us understand that our role is to believe and then to act according to the belief. Okay? The, that's, that's about 38 seconds on what should be a, a full uh, hour or three on, uh, on those roles and things like that. But, but what we have to understand is that neither end of those spectrums is correct. God has a role to play, and we have a role to play. God is the one who works in us to bring about the willing and the working for his good pleasure. And then we have the role of believing and then acting and working out that salvation with fear and trembling. We have to believe in who God is and what he says to be able to respond with awe, with fear and trembling, awe and reverence. And so we believe and then act on that belief. And this passage here nullifies both ends of that spectrum. It's not let go and let God, and it's not up to our efforts. God has a role and man has a role. There is a priority, though. If you, if you look there, you can see that at verse 13, it starts out with a four. Okay, and so man's role is a result and is because of God's role. God saved us, thus we even have a role. God is giving us the willing and the working, and he is worthy of awe and reverence, and so we carry out our role. So there's, a, there's a, I guess, in essence, a subordination and a priority there. In everything that we're going to discuss today, is there, there's a thread of dependence upon the work of God and his role. Without God, there is no sanctification. Sanctification can fail 
because of just us, but can never succeed because of just us. We can cause, we can, we can fail in that process, but we, in and of ourselves, cannot bring it about. Okay, we must have dependence upon the Lord. And as God performs his, his internal and supernatural work within us, our role is to believe in him and respond accordingly. And this is what we're going to drill down on today. Um, we're going to flesh it out theologically and practically. Um, our role and how to actually carry it out. Okay? It's an important topic for today. Uh, Michael Riccardi in his book, Sanctification, The Christian's Pursuit of God-Given Holiness, which I highly recommend. You should write that down. Riccardi, R-I-C-C-A-R-D-I, Sanctification. Um, it's, it's about 90 pages. It's a quick read, and it's very, very helpful in just understanding some of the biblical truths about this. But he says this, if there is a doctrine that Christians cannot afford to be confused about, it's the doctrine of sanctification. And I say this because it is where we all live. All believers in Christ live in between the past time of our justification and our future glorification. And the present right now is the pursuit of Christ-likeness. So sanctification is where we live. Justification for a believer has happened. Glorification will happen, but we live in sanctification. So we got to understand the right approach to it and got to understand the right... Um, the right characteristics of this place, of this stage. And so for the sake of our present day and for our moment-to-moment -moment living, let's try and establish a theology of growth, a theology of the process and means of sanctification from our end. Remember, God has his role, but God has his role under control. And there's no deficiency or failure on God's end. He understands the theology, understands the process and the means, and so we need to trust his role to him, and we need to really understand and seek to work out our role. So in terms of our own endeavors in sanctification, I think a, a helpful key text is found in Ephesians chapter 4. So go to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 17. Paul says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. Here's our key verses. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Very, very helpful verses right here for our understanding um, and, and really just providing a, a framework and a grid for how to even approach sanctification in our day-to-day -day life. Three-step process that we can, we can sort of take these steps and lay them onto over top of really any situation that we come across. The first step here is lay aside the old self. Put off. As Paul says in, in verse 22, he says, In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. The old self here, it can be defined within the context, okay? These are things in reference to our former manner of life. They're things being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. The things in which the Gentiles also walk of verse 17 uh, things to do with a darkened understanding, things to do with futile thinking, sensuality, greed, selfish impurity. Those are characteristics of the old self that we lay aside. But this notion of laying aside the old self is interesting because in Christ, 
there's sort of a dual reality, right? The old self is dead. It's been crucified. As, as Pastor Rick spoke last week, I think, we're not slaves to sin anymore. We are not bound to that nature. Rather, there, there, there is a new state of being that we have as Christians And at conversion, there is a finality to the death of the old man. The old man has passed away. The old man is crucified with Christ on the cross, Romans 6.6. 6. And this, this is not like a sort of a half-baked accomplishment that's sort of done, um, but not fully done. It's not like the old self is, is sick but still alive and kicking and clinging on to us. The old self is passed away. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And so there's no situation where we say the old man is too strong. I can't win this because he's dead. And yet we are to lay those things aside. So I I found it helpful to understand that even though that reality is done in its finality, there still is the present wrestling match with the expressions of that old self. And it requires further actions. The old man is dead. He's crucified and passed away. And yet, as I thought about it, there's there's almost like the capacity to wear him like some stinking, rotten, flesh, corpse, robe of old selfness as we walk in our lives. He's not alive, but we're wearing him like a cloak. And so Paul is saying here, instead of propping up this corpse in our life of, of the old man and the sinful expressions of who he was, lay him off. Put those things aside. Understand the reality of what's been done with, through Christ at conversion, that all of that is dead is dead and we are free, right? That's what Pastor Rick, I think, spoke on last Sunday. There's no, there's no equivocation here. There's no uh, kind of sort of, those are the truths. And so much of sanctification comes to, to realizing and thinking and considering and then acting in the sense of understanding that that old self is dead and I need to put him off. I do not have to wear him or live like him anymore. I don't have to. Every time I do, that's my choice. Okay? So we need to lay him aside to recognize those things that are associated with him and the corruption of the flesh, and be done with them. See, most of the time, we tend to flirt with them, right? I see that in my life. Ah, that's old self, but I bet I I can get this close before I really act out like him. But that's not the imagery here. The imagery is just, just take it off and put it away. Be done with it. So recognize those things and be done with them. Consign them to the has been of the theological reality rather than uh, rationalize their, the, the presence of those things. And so I believe what the Ephesians were taught here and what our role here is to recognize the reality of the old self being crucified and then to think and act accordingly. Again, I believe very similar to what Pastor Rick spoke last week. But to not allow ourselves to say, I can't, or, well, you just don't understand. Because those things defy God's word and God's truth, because you can. And the reality is, as God says, you've been set free. He's been killed. You've been made new. And so we lay those things aside, and there are, there are, There are purposeful and intentional ways to go about that that uh, hopefully we'll have time uh, to cover. But the second second step here is is number two, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And here here we can find some awesome action items that that you may say, ah, really, again? Well, 
Yeah, for the last 2,000 years, there's not necessarily been anything new uh, created in the process of sanctification for Christians. Okay, so this is not, you know, seven steps to a perfect life, even though you can find that online. Okay, this is not ten steps to, to never sinning again. I actually haven't found that one online, but I'm sure it's there. But here, here in being renewed in the spirit of our minds is our battle plan. So in the midst of, of, as step one said, recognizing the realities of our conversion and then thinking accordingly and acting accordingly in those things, we continually seek to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. This is an inner renovation, okay? A rebuilding of our makeup, of our thought processes, our desires, our worldviews. What we have to understand is the phrasing of that statement. It doesn't say renew yourself. It says be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's a passive idea where something is done to us. But while we cannot renew our minds, we have the choice to either put ourselves in the way of that renewal or to keep ourselves out of the way of that renewal. Okay, it's done to us, but it's up to us about whether we make ourselves available for that renewal or whether we stay away from it. It's very similar to what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, right, about not being conformed, but being transformed. You don't transform yourselves. But the question is, are you going to be conformed to this by, by external pressures, or are you going to be transformed by these other pressures? And Paul is exhorting you, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So who does the renewing? Titus 3, 5, you write that down and look at it later, would attribute the work of renewing to the Holy Spirit. So we must be available for his work. Which means we must not be quenching the Spirit, you know, kind of building up those stifling calluses, which again usually comes from, from flirting with sin and rationalizing sin and coddling sin and also keeping ourselves removed from the renewal process. We must be available for his work and not stifle his work. Riccardi, in that book, again, says sanctification is a fundamentally... Okay, this is, this is key, I think, especially for, uh, <clears throat> for maybe us in our, our day and in our church and in our culture. Sanctification is a fundamentally, fundamentally internal and supernatural work. And because of that, it is a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. Okay, those are crucial understandings. But, thirdly, the Holy Spirit employs means in sanctifying the believer. And he doesn't necessarily just sort of, you know, you're walking along, whack, hits you with the wand of sanctification, and suddenly, poof, you're changed. Okay? He employs means, but he doesn't just, just take the two-by-four of sanctification and hit you whether you want it or not, whether you like it or not. It is an, a, a fundamentally an internal and supernatural work that the Holy Spirit uses, but he uses means that we must be available for and be seeking to, uh, to be in the, the flow of. So what are some of those means of grace? What are some of those tools of sanctification? One of his favorites, it's a good old Sunday school answer, the Bible. You're like... I came, I came early for this? Come on, man. I knew the Bible. Like I said, there, there's nothing necessarily new. God's ways are, are perfect. God's ways have always been through what he's established here. And what he has always said is what 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 say. Is that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for, for correction, for reproof. For training and righteousness so that the man of God may be uh, adequate, may be mature, may be complete. So if you want to be corrected and taught and trained and, and mature and adequate, God's word acts upon us. 
The Holy Spirit uses God's word to act upon us. Do you want to learn what sin and righteousness is? That's something that the Spirit can teach you in his word. You want to be strengthened in godliness and weaken the flesh? That is something that the Spirit does through his word. You want to be ready to carry out the good works that God has saved you for and put before you in the midst of your sanctification? Ah, Ephesians 2.10. It's a fantastic verse to just meditate on. The Bible puts that before you and the Holy Spirit drives that into your heart. The psalmist says, your word, I have, your word I have hidden in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. God's word is the two-edged sword that the Spirit wields in our heart and our minds to renew us, to cut out the sin and to build us up in the realities of the new man. So it's interesting. Sometimes we think, okay, I'm going to grow. So I'm going to read, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take the action. But really, when we, when we open this, and when we read this, and when we open our hearts and minds to, to what God has to say in his word, we're not taking the action. The Holy Spirit is taking the word and acting upon us. And he will renew us as we make ourselves available for that by opening and dependently reading. What are some of the uh, avenues of this? Absolutely personal study. Absolutely reading on your own, studying on your own, memorizing on your own. But for the sake of, of knowing Christ, for the sake of, of being available for the Lord to work on and change and not just saying, okay, I read my chapter for the day. I have no idea what I just read, um, but I checked my box off. Okay? There's, 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 a, there's a difference in there. And that's something that you can talk about with friends and pastors and elders and care group leaders because we just got to keep motoring through all this stuff. But personal study for the sake of growth and intimacy with the Lord and not just a checklist accomplishment is one of the ways that you can make yourself available to God's work through his word. But then there's also the, the corporate application of God's word. Folks, <clears throat> sitting and listening to a sermon, sitting and listening to a Sunday school lesson is not just an event. It's not just a, um, a spectator sport. It is an opportunity for you, for I, me, to, to sit and to be renewed. To have the Holy Spirit take his word and press it into our minds and in our hearts and to renew us according to the truths within us. So you don't just say, eh, it's a service, eh, it's a Sunday school. I mean, what's the big deal? We have like six of those a month. Those are, yeah, six. Those are no, that's just services. Counting Sunday school, 10. That's 10 opportunities to put yourself in the way of the renewal of God's word as it's proclaimed and taught. Those should be gold for us. Those should be, those should be valuable for us because we want to be sanctified. And this is, this is one of the means that God uses for that. So again... It's easy to think, well, man, Aaron, that's not very practical. Well, it is. Come. Read. Open. That's practical, right? Listen. But our day and age of, of kind of get-quick solutions, you know, we want the sort of the seven steps to perfection kind of process. And, and yet, at the core, renewal and growth comes from knowledge and wisdom. 2 Peter 3.18 encourages believers to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul prays for the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 9 and following. He says, he prays that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he says, why? So I want you to grow in the knowledge of his will in all spiritual and understanding. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, ah, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience 
joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So we might tend to think of it as academic or maybe impractical, but Paul says, God's word says that knowledge and wisdom result in good works, being strengthened with power, attaining steadfastness, being patient, and being thankful. Those are incredible fruits of growing in knowledge. And we grow in knowledge via God's word, via his spirit, working that in our hearts. So it's vital that we be renewed. And the renovation and renewal accomplished by the spirit through God's word is unsurpassed. So that's, that's means number one, okay? We can't discount it. We can't say, ah, oh, it's just a little Sunday school answer of the Bible. This is God, one of God's chosen means for you to grow, for me to grow. So if you think it's trite, talk to God. If you wish there was another way, talk to God. Because this is what he said. This is what he's given and what he has dictated will be one of the primary means. If we don't do it, if we don't spend time in it, being available for the Lord to work, then that, that relays, that, that shows our heart about God and his ways. Okay, so you can just chew on that. Means number two, prayer. Prayer, talking to God. Look at look in James with me real quick. James chapter 1, verse 5, <clears throat> talking about enduring trials and, and hardships. If any of you lacks wisdom, what are you supposed to do? Let him ask of God. That requires prayer. Chapter 4, verse 2. You lust and do not have, you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. But then you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Talking to God is, is a God-prescribed way to grow. If we don't talk to God, then it reveals that either we don't think he can give what we want or we think we can engender what we desire or, or create what we desire. And, and both of those are false because those things are from the Lord. As Philippians 2 said, those, those areas of growth, the willing and the working do come from the Lord. And so if we want them, then we ask for them. Look in uh, Hebrews with me. Chapter uh, 4, verse 16. We're in a time of need. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may find, uh, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, we, we know it very well, right? It says, you know, be anxious for nothing. Anxiety would be, would be one of, uh, an area that we could all be sanctified in and we would all struggle with at one point or another. But what is Paul's prescribed solution to anxiety? First of all, don't be anxious. But how do you do that? You do it through prayer. So trite. Well, you're talking to the God of the universe. So it's really not trite. It'd be tried if you were talking to me. I can't help you. But God can. And he says he will. And so prayer is one of the means that he gives to us in our sanctification. We, we can't leave God out of the process. And, and that's one of the, the ends of the spectrum where we say, well, I have to do. I have to bring this, this growth about. I have to prove that I was worth being saved or, or, or I have to show that I'm good enough. But we can't leave God out of the process. And how often do we approach a situation or, or, or come out of a situation 
um, and, and get frustrated with ourselves that we failed or, you know, kind of grit our teeth and say, I can endure this or I can do better in this. But then we never talk to the Lord. All that says is that I'm living over here. I can do this. I can do the working and the willing. Well, no, that's God who does it. So you have to pray and you have to demonstrate that dependence. And it's not just a dependence in hard times, right? Dependence on the Lord in good times results in a thankful spirit. Because then it shows, oh, I, I realize that even in good times, I'm not self-sufficient. And so part of my sanctifying process is growing in my understanding that in those good seasons and in those times of God's blessing, then there's that return of thanks and the awareness that this is not me. This is not me that I have actually grown in sanctification. This is not my effort that I don't struggle in that area like I used to. So thank you, Lord. So we, we, we demonstrated dependence in in the growth and in the good, but also in the struggle and in the hard. B.B. Warfield says, what is prayer but the very adjustment of the heart for the influx of grace? It orients your life in a dependent manner to be available and connected to the Lord for His work in our hearts, and when we fail to address him in those situations, we, we, we largely fail to connect ourselves in that sort of a way. Means number three, the fellowship of the church gathering. Okay, the fellowship of the church gathering. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. You can't sharpen yourself. Okay? You need to be around others so that they can exercise their spiritual gifts in your life to give you awareness in your life that, that you and I don't have for ourselves. We are never so blind as when we try to self-diagnose. And so we need others both, <laughs> both to build us up into grace. Say, brother, you probably don't see this because we're blind in this even, but God's grace has been evident in you these last weeks, days, whatever. I've seen you grow in this. It was such a blessing to see you do this, to, to hear this come out of your mouth, whatever. Sometimes you go, really? That was, you talking about me? And so you can be encouraged in that. But on the other hand, too, you can walk along thinking everything is hunky-dory, and then somebody comes alongside you and says, hey, do you, do you have any idea how flagrantly you fouled right then? You go, man, no, I, I had no idea. We're never so blind as when we self-diagnose, and so we, we need help discerning both the evidences of grace in our lives, but also the evidences of weakness in our lives. We need help. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, 24 to 25. It says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's, that's group sanctification. So when we gather together, because verse 25 says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We gather together for group sanctification to get together, to come alongside, to link arms, to put our arms around each other, and to say... Press on to love and good deeds. Here's something before you that you could walk in. Let me encourage you in this. We need that. There's no lone rangers in Christian sanctification. We need one another in that process. And God gives us one another in the corporate worship gatherings. Hebrews 12, 12 to 13 says... Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak. It's talking about the body analogy, not talking about your own hands. As a body, we strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and we make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint. We don't want it to get further damaged. We want it to be healed. And that's something that we do, we ought to do, we ought to have on our hearts 
and a burden in our interactions with one another is to come alongside each other and to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds and to come alongside one another and to recognize, brother, you seem weak. You seem like you're on the verge of being put out of joint. I'm going to help you be healed. Discipleship and change. And one of the ways that, that, that God does that is through the fellowship of the church gathering. I mean, that brings in the Lord's Supper, which sanctifies and reminds and causes us to self-reflect. Uh, we give when we gather. That reminds us of our priorities and the stewardship perspective that we're to have. Baptisms reminds us of our salvation and the work of Christ in life and across the world. It gives us joy as we see the Lord work. So that's, that's the third means. And I don't think these are comprehensive, but these are the ones that I wanted to put on the list here. Um, number four, the means of life. Okay? Otherwise known as providence. God's working in life, in the details of life, the occurrences of life, the circumstances of life. Romans 8.28 says, well, go there with me. Pastor Rick preached it, and we all know it, but it's important to, to be reflect, refreshed in that. Romans 8.28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Life, everything in life for us is in those two words, all things. So God causes life to work together for good. What is that good? To be conformed to the image of his son in verse 29. Sanctification. Becoming more Christ-like. God uses life and circumstances to make us more Christ-like. To either show us an area of sin to, to be put off or, as we're going to cover, to show us an area of, of grace and righteousness to grow in and to be encouraged in. When you're flying back from Italy and your flight, everybody else gets through customs fine, but apparently we have names that are on some sort of watch list, and I'm forever doomed to always go through the slow customs line. And so you miss the flights, and then you get delayed on your next flight, and you don't get home until 3 a.m. Like all, That is God's work to sanctify. And so the question is then, do we look at those details in life and say, Lord, I know what you have for me in this. And it's my good and it's my growth. Or we can say, oh, man, and I struggle with a little bit. But then there's the conversation in my mind about, well, okay, what's the truth of the situation here? The truth is I know my God is provident. The truth is, is, is sovereign. The truth is I know he's working right now. And so I can trust that we're going to get home Lord willing, at some point, and that's going to be the point when God wants us to get home. And we have great people taking care of our kids, and they're going to be okay. Like, but God works in each and every detail of life. The loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, the, the missing of a promotion, the, the, the favorite restaurant not having the meal, or, or, or Starbucks running out of the favorite syrup that you like so much. I mean, I'm trying to go from the, the, the greater to the lesser. Any and every circumstance that we come across, and then the good, the encouraging things, God brings those into your life to sanctify you and to grow you. And so look at life with the Romans 28 glasses, the filter of saying, Lord, you have my good in this. I may not even know what it is. I mean, 90% of the time, we don't know what it is. But that's, that's because we're different than God. That's because we're smaller than God. We're more finite than God. And we don't, we don't have the capacity to, to think and to have the awareness of, of everything like God does. But if God is who he says he is and we believe he is who he says he is, then we act accordingly. And that's our role. You see? And so we believe that he is sovereign because he says he is sovereign. We believe that this is going to be for our good because he says it is. And so we act and respond accordingly. But if we looked, if we wore those types of glasses and we looked at life that way, uh, I mean, that, that would change the next traffic jam that we get into. 
Because you know what? Even a traffic jam is not, especially down on 435 right now, with all the construction. That's not outside of God's providence. That's not outside of the all things of Romans 8.28, okay? But, but so often we tend to just sort of pitch those things out the window and say, well, God doesn't really have anything to do with that. No, he has absolutely everything to do with that. And he has your good in mind as you go through those circumstances. And that's easier or harder to really, to really act accordingly depending on the circumstance. And I totally understand that. But that's one of the reasons that we need the body is to help us remind ourselves in the midst of those excruciating hard times, you know, the, the little, little paltry piddling things aside, in those excruciatingly hard times, we need the body to come alongside and to encourage one another to love and to good deeds, to persevere in the faith and to remember the truth. So it all kind of ties together. The last one, the last means is, is obedience in and of itself. And this is interesting. Look in John chapter uh, 15. Obedience itself. John chapter 15, verse 10. If, contingent, okay? If you keep my commands, if you obey, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Look just back a few verses. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So obedience demonstrates love. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and disclose myself to him. Obedience brings about greater abiding in God's love and greater understanding of Christ. Okay, so you can think about that. Next time you're faced with the choice, I'm at a crossroads, I'm in the midst of a situation, and I have the choice to either obey or to disobey. Okay, well, what do I want? Do I want, do I want more of Christ or do I want less of Christ? Okay, I'll obey or I'll disobey. Well, what if I don't feel a particular way? Well, obedience demonstrates love. So by the very fact, I think, by the very fact that faced with a, with a, a crossroads before you, even if you don't feel necessarily what uh, our culture tends to, tend to be like, you know, the, 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 the sort of the sappy, fluffy, marshmallow emotions of love, Okay, which is not necessarily the biblical description of love. Even if you don't feel that particular way, the willingness to put off and to choose to put on and to obey demonstrates love. If you don't love, you're going to pitch it all out the window anyway. But not only does obedience demonstrate love, it sanctifies you. It helps you to know Christ more. It helps you to both experience and understand him and his love more. I, I can't think of a single circumstance in my life where I've come to a crossroads and, and, and I've made the choice and I've gone down the road of obedience a little bit and gone, shucks. Wish I'd chosen something different. <laughs> because, you know, as you wrestle with your flesh, you think, oh, well, this, this could be nice. This could be good. But then once you choose this, you realize, no, this is way better. 100% of the time. But obedience, sometimes it requires just that choice. And it doesn't just sort of happen magically every time. Sometimes you have to say, what's the truth of the scenario? And then say, I will obey my Savior. Whether you're looking at the computer, whether you're going to discipline your kid, whether you're in traffic, whether you have to pay your taxes or a penalty or a fee or I don't know. Every situation as you walk into it, you have the opportunity to obey and to demonstrate the love and to grow in Christ. So, 
If we want to truly be renewed in our minds, we have to, this is key, we have to avail ourselves of these means of grace. We don't do these things to take action on ourselves. We do these things to put ourselves in the way of God's grace, to make ourselves fertile soil for God to garden in. God has ordained that the word, prayer, fellowship, life, and obedience all come into play and work together for our growth and blessing. We should not, however, expect renewal to happen without those things. It's like expecting to get clean while you're standing outside of the shower looking at the water come down. I'm waiting. You've got to get in the shower to get clean. You have to put yourself in the way of God's grace and it will impact you. Number three. First is lay aside or put off. Next is be renewed. Subtitled, put yourself in the way of God's grace. Number three is put on the new self. And again, we're dealing here with a bit of a dual reality because the new self has been created at conversion. And this is a new creation that's in existence already, and yet we need to basically, it goes parallel, hand in glove with the, with the put off of the old and then you put on. And so just as the, the notion of taking off the cloak of that, that rotten, stinking corpse of the old man, now is the idea of actually clothe yourselves in the new man. Okay? Choose your outfit accordingly. Ladies, you're going on a date to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse because you're all good Midwestern ladies and you like a nice steak, right? No? Sorry, total stereotype. If you're going on a nice date, you choose the right outfit. Here we go, guys. Stereotype again. You're going duck hunting, which I really enjoy. You don't wear flip-flops and a Hawaiian shirt. You wear, you wear tans and browns and you know, you, you hide yourself in the, in the reeds and, and those types of things. You're wearing waders. You're wearing camo. Okay? You clothe yourself accordingly. And so the reality is that the old man is dead. And so you put it off. You say, no, I am not enslaved to that. That is not me anymore. And you, lay, and you put on the new. You say, yeah, this is me. So what does that look like? Well, you've been redeemed, you've been made new, and are steadily in the process of being transformed. And so, what is the right outfit? The right outfit is the things that accord with righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is not justification, but it's righteousness and holiness of the deeds. Okay, they're external manifestations of the internal reality. Look back in Ephesians with me. After the verses that we've just briefly processed now he says put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created see there's that there's that reality it's been created but but you still need to put it on in righteousness and holiness of the truth so what's his what's his next verse he says therefore laying aside falsehood that's of the old man speak truth so you're in a situation you say, I'm faced with a choice to lie or to speak truth. Well, lying is of the old man, and so I say no. And I say, you know what? I'm going to embrace whatever consequences might come because the truth is of the new man. And so I speak truth. And he goes on. He who steals, that's of the old man. Steal no longer. Stop it. That's not you. But rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, but not just to work with your own hands. Why? So that he will have something to share with the one in need, because sharing and kindness is of the new man. Paul's very, he's pretty cut and dry. He doesn't exactly, you know, allow all sorts of uh, ifs, ands, or buts. He says, put it aside, be renewed, and put it on. And so every situation that we come across, there's that opportunity. I have actually found it very helpful in, in a particular area to actually chart that out. 
Here's a column. What does it mean to put this aside? Here's a column. How can I be renewed in this area? Here's a column. What does it mean to put this on? If I'm struggling with envy at work, I recognize here's the verses that tell me that envy is of the old man. Here's the heart motives, selfishness, greed, entitlement, pride that tell me I deserve that. Okay, so there's how you put it off. You recognize it and then you repent of it. And I'm summarizing like three pages of notes right now. And then you be renewed. And say, Lord, I'm going to study. I want you to work in my heart through your word about this issue. And so you study it and you let him work through the spirit. You pray to him. You beg to him to change your heart. You memorize verses. You put reminders up on your car window so that as you drive to work, you'll remember, okay, this is the mindset as I go to work and I see this guy who got the promotion that I thought I deserved. But then you say, well, what does it mean to put on the new man? Okay, so that means that I should rejoice with him. That means I should be kind to him. That means I should go and I should embrace the Christian walk of love towards this person for whom I am experiencing these sinful feelings. Okay, and so you say, okay, so this time, instead of, you know, putting my head to the side and walking by the guy and not acknowledging, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk up, I'm going to look him in the eye and say, good morning, congratulations. And then, and then, you, and then, and then more, and then you, you think it through. You see what I mean, though? You can take every aspect of life and you can think it through in that way and you can come away with a very clear, very helpful um, understanding of how to grow. And you can take those steps, always remembering that those are means of grace and that you're seeking to believe the truth of God and then to act accordingly. But it is him who is at work within you to do those things. And so you give credit to him for when you succeed and you beg him for when you're struggling. But remember those truths. But this, what's the goal in all of this? One of, one of my fears is that some, sometimes we have a tendency to think that um, it's just behavior modification. Just do better, okay? Try harder, do better, and, and, and you're good. The goal of sanctification is a change in heart, desire, and direction, okay? One author calls it uh, taste bud transformation. So it's not just you changing what you put in your mouth, but it's changing the fact that you actually like the food that you're putting in your mouth, that analogy makes sense. I love food, so it works in my head. Taste bud transformation. It's actually about liking and desiring different things than before. Heart change. And that's how you'll know you're actually growing in sanctification. When your will lines up more closely with God's will, and when your affections are stirred more intensely by His character, then you'll know you're growing. Not simply behavior modification, Okay? But the growth of your heart and your character to line more up with Christ. And so that's something to pray for, to beg the Lord for. While you're putting off your sin and putting yourself in the flow of God's grace, and while you're seeking to put on the works of the new man, you pray to God to work in your heart. That's his rule. He will not fail. He will give you the willing, and you'll truly find with, with time and with you diligently carrying out your role that God will grow you, and as the hymn says, the, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But what if change is absent, or what if it's slow? I think in some ways we have to question those questions. What is slow? Is that, is that our timeline? I see in my own life and in many people that I'll either counsel or just disciple on a casual basis. I see a lot of impatience. We're very much a, a quick fix society, right? I don't want to wait more than three minutes for my drink. I don't want to wait more than five minutes for my food. I don't want to wait more than 90 seconds for a change in my own life, even though I've built up this pattern for 28 years. <laughs> but slow growth is growth, and growth is good. But if you're asking why is it absent or why is it slow, then maybe we need to go back and ask who's deficient in our lives. Is it God or is it me? You know, 
If you're right in your understanding, you're going to recognize that it's not God. God will not fail. He might not act in ways that we can always be seeing, but he's not failing. Okay, and there's a big difference. And the difference between those two is one of the ways to understand, do I truly believe? Can I wait in belief? If God is deficient, let's just throw in the towel. Seriously. If it's God's fault, just be done with it. But it's not. God never fails. So we can always go back and we can take a look at ourselves. We could be struggling in our role. We could be failing or deficient in our role of laying aside and, and uh, being renewed and putting on. Or we could just have kind of a faithless interpretation of events as well. I mean, maybe we're not as willing as Paul to live with weakness and struggle for the sake of demonstrating God's grace as we need to be. And so God doesn't take something away to give us the opportunity to grow and to demonstrate that. But look at Paul's response. Okay. I'll do that. Lord, for your sake, for the glory of your name, I'll do that. I'll walk with this hardship. We, we, we tend to be like, get that out of here or I'm done. Because a lot of the times we're more about us than we are about the Lord and his glory in our lives. If you feel like there's an absence or a slowness of growth, it never hurts to examine yourself, especially if there's just a blatant absence, but bring people alongside of you to give you perspective in your life. But it never hurts to examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. It never hurts. I think, I think the more that I go, the more, the more that I think, you know what, there's going to be a lot less genuine believers than think they are. So it never hurts to examine yourself. But then you can ask yourself, where am I at in those three steps? If you don't see any engagement in the putting off and being renewed and putting on, well, then start engagement in the process and see what happens. Too many people think that they can do the Christian life apart from faith, which you can't, but too many people think that they can do the Christian life and coddle sin, and you can't. That process must be in the midst of your life in the midst of my life. But ultimately, neither absence of growth nor slowness changes the problem. If we're dealing with a situation in our lives and wish, you know, a resolution would come faster or we don't see progress, never does a heart problem begin to be solved by anything other than a heart solution. Okay? Turning to man's solutions for our heart dilemmas, whether it's whether it's medicine or alcohol or drugs or um, other relationships or whatever the case, those are all solutions people could come up with to feel better. They may provide changes of feeling, circumstances, or comfort, but it never actually solves the problem. And more often than not, even gets us into trouble. And, and too often, it's caused by an unwillingness to wait and trust in God's character. I've got to be done, but think about Abram and Sarai. When God said, you're going to have a kid, and time went on. Talk about a sanctifying process. Wait, 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 wait. Is this going to happen? Wait. So what did ultimately they do? Sarah is like, well, hey, here, have my maid. Have a baby with her. Ah, oh, great. I don't know what's going on with the Lord, so we'll just go ahead and take this solution into our own hands. And look at what happened. The ramifications of that. but they had a faithless response to the circumstances. And so sanctification in that situation would have been, no, I know who God is, and I will respond accordingly. So again, talk with each other. Come alongside one another and say, brother, sister, how can you put that off? How are you doing in being renewed? What is going on? Why are you not in this means of grace? Ah, isn't it amazing as we're in this means of grace to see the impact of that? Have that process. 
and then encourage one another and come alongside one another to, to, to put on the new man and to say, look at the love and good deeds that you can go and you can live out at your work, in your home, in your neighborhood, or whatever the case. And it's a great opportunity for us to, um, to grow as a body. Hopefully that has made some semblance of sense. If not, come on up and ask me, um, and I'll try and clarify whatever I may have muddied up.